Now, on the, on the Sunday nights when we're meeting together with the two churches, I thought it would be useful um, to, to think about those things, those things that cause us anxiety, that make us fear the future, that make us concerned about uh, the days that lie ahead. And I, I feel a bit like, you know when you get injured and someone puts a big plaster on? You, know, you, get, you have a lovely big pastor, and, and, then it, and then it's starting to get, have you ever had that? And it gets sorer and sorer and sorer, and, and someone goes, oh, I'm going to have to take the plaster off and have a look. And you go, no, no. And you kind of rip the plaster off, and then you can put the healing balm on. You know, I feel tonight like I'm going to rip the plaster off and then apply the healing balm. So the beginning is, is, is kind of negative. But I'm doing that so that I can then apply the balm. It's better to do that than to ignore the problem. One of the things when we look to the future and when we see the challenges that face us as a community of Christians and as a culture, one of the dangers we have is the danger of ignoring it. One of the dangers we have is the danger of, like the ostrich, sticking its head in the sand. And hoping it'll all go away or, or going to bed and hoping it'll all be all right in the morning. It really is all okay and all all right in the morning. Sometimes we just have to look this problem straight in the eyes. You know, have to rip the plaster off and say, here's the issues. Because the Bible has the answer, the healing balm. And so in a way, that's what it feels like I'm going to do tonight. So here we go. I've got hold of the plaster. Okay, and I'm just tugging the edge, and I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna, I'm about to do it slowly or quickly, you know? That's the big question, isn't it? We live in uncertain days, and if you've got your eyes open, you could say this has always been the case, and every generation could say we live in uncertain days. But for us, I think there's a particular speed of change and a particular ferocity of change that we really need to grasp and get hold of and understand. There are areas of change now that cause deep confusion, deep anxiety and anger. And we see that all around us. And if you spend any time on social media, I'm not recommending you do, but if you do, or if you watch the television and you watch the news, you'll see that this is, this is fairly common to everything around us. There is an anxiety, there is a confusion, and there's an anger. And the reasons for it, or some of the reasons, we're living in a technical world that is becoming increasingly technological. And we're struggling to keep up. We're struggling to keep up. And there are a few generations here. And one generation is saying, I just don't understand computers at all. And another generation is saying, I understand computers, but I don't understand social media. And then most of us saying, the developments ahead of us, I, I do not understand all their implications. By which I mean... There are certain programs running nowadays that you can access through your computer where the computer has learned artificial, has a, a learned artificial intelligence to the point that you can put a question to this computer program 
by just typing in a question. And it can provide you with an essay that is almost good enough to get you through a university degree. That's how I understand it. It's quite remarkable. It's quite remarkable. The advance that's taking place in technology. And that's just technology as in computing technology. The more dangerous thing in my mind is the biological technology that's taking place. And there's a biological technology. One person put it like this. There was fire technology, the Bronze Age, the Iron Age. And then there was industrial technology, the Machine Age. And now we're moving ourselves now into the biological technology where they're starting to change the very basic foundation principles of life, the DNA of things. Now, I don't know how that's going to work. And I, I, am, I, 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 I have deep concerns about how it's going to work. Uh, for, most, for much of my life, I've been a dairy farmer and uh, sheep and dairy and agriculture, and I'm deeply concerned about some of the practices that are taking place in, in the area of agriculture and biotechnology. I just, I just wonder where it'll stop, and if it gets free, how it'll stop. So those are areas of, of confusion, and we're kind of work, trying to work it out. It's, a, it's hugely complex, and we're wrestling with that. It's, it's very uncertain, a very uncertain future. And then we're living in a global world that seems to have got smaller. In other words, you could travel around most of it. But nowadays, it seems to be getting bigger and smaller. So by what I mean is it's harder and harder to travel because you feel less and less safe as things develop, you know. I mean, my brother, when... 40 years ago, he got a, a train ticket. That was it. Train ticket, some money, his clothes, a backpack, and he went to Europe for four weeks. And he went right round Europe. Uh, and another, another group of my friends, when I was farming, they went through Europe, and then they went through Afghanistan and India, and they went um, to visit some missionary friends in Thailand eventually, and then Australia. And their parents didn't worry. I think we're living in a very different world, aren't we? In, in some ways, the world is getting smaller in, in, in that almost within an instant, you, you can find out that there's a plane fallen out of a sky over Russia. Everyone knows within five minutes that it's happened. But then it's, in some ways, it's, it's becoming more hostile and, and bigger. That's, that's odd. I, and also the movements of people across the world. And people are moving across the world in huge, huge numbers. And if you think that there are huge numbers coming into the UK, that's nothing compared to what's happening between Afghanistan and Pakistan and Afghanistan and India, Afghanistan and Uzbekistan. That's nothing. There are huge people groups moving across the world. And it's, it's a very uncertain day. We also live in a day where Powerful companies seem to hold sway. And so there are a number of very powerful companies that, that seem to be able to um, decide what happens. Uh, increasingly powerful 
companies like Amazon. It's, it's remarkable. You can, you can, I could buy uh, an Amazon gift and have it delivered into the middle of Delhi by tomorrow afternoon. That's mind-boggling. Utterly, utterly mind-boggling. If you have a missionary friend somewhere, you can pretty well get a gift to them through Amazon within a week. It, it used to take six months to get a gift. We're, we're living in a very odd world where these huge companies seem to be taking increasing control. And, and that's concerning as well. Uh, not to mention the technological companies that we, we, just, we just use them as a, a default, you know, Google and Facebook and Twitter and things like that, who have great capacity to control information. We're also living in a world where changes are happening at an incredible speed and we're not really involved in the discussion. And the changes are not just technological and um, to do with technology and to do with commerce. The changes are moral changes. And we, we really start to feel this. And as Christians, we really feel this very strongly. That things 10 years ago that we thought would, shouldn't be talked about even in private are now published and given to children in the library in public. We, we, we're just amazed at the moral speed of moral change that is being pushed. I'm not saying it's being achieved, but it's being pushed. And that's deeply concerning as well. Uh, how people think and how they view themselves, how they view you, how they view the world around them is changing very, very quickly. And, and I think in some ways that development is harder to wrestle with than getting Amazon to deliver you a toy or a gift or whatever within two hours of pressing a button. This area is, is harder to wrestle with. And as Christians, we sometimes feel like because we are pushing against the tide. And so you wonder what the future's going to be. Uh, I'm, I'm, this is a slow rip-off, isn't it? You know, it's like, full. This, is, uh, this bandage is coming off very slowly. And then uh, we found out recently that Christians are the baddies. Yeah, there was an, uh, an Australian uh, wrote a book. When did we become the baddies? When did we become the baddies? We always thought that Christians were the moral ones. We always thought that the Christians were the moral, upright ones. Society considered Christians to be the moral, upright ones in society. Many people now consider us, though our views haven't changed, to be the immoral and the unkind. In fact, the enemy to progress, human progress. Very disconcerting. Whereas in the past, if you said in your workplace, I'm a Christian, people would have taken it as a, as a good thing. Now, if you say you're a Christian in a university or a school or in a workplace, some people will immediately consider you to be a bigot, ju judgmental, unkind, unloving. That's a huge change. That's a huge change for British Christians. Now, for other Christians in other places in the world, they've been living with that most of their lives. So we live in a world where things are changing very, very, very quickly. So my question last time and now is, 
how can I be optimistic about the future? How can I stand faithfully? And what are the grounds and the foundations of my optimism and hope? So how can I be optimistic? Can you? Or, or is it, are, you, are we just stuck with, you know, pessimism and, and fear? How can I be optimistic? How can I stand firm? What will strengthen me to stand and say no? What will strengthen me to take a stand and say that's, that's not how I'm going to live or think or speak or act? And what are the grounds? My answer this evening is found in 1 John. And there are three things. The truth of God is first, the grace of God, second, and thirdly, I have the presence of God. How can I stand today in such a rapidly changing and at times very confusing world? First of all, the truth of God. Jesus Christ is here described by John. And John is beginning his biography of Jesus. And he begins it not with uh, the, the story of the manger and the angels. Others have done that. He doesn't need to do that. It's a well-known account. He begins with something a little more theological. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God and the Word was God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory. And that's what I want to look at. The word became flesh, made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only true son who came from the father, full of truth and grace. Truth and grace and presence. First of all, truth, a definition of truth. Because today we have your truth and my truth. Yeah, And you'll say to someone, I, I, I don't believe that. And they go, yeah, that's your truth. This is my truth. The Bible says there is only truth. Truth, in the old-fashioned definition, is that which corresponds to reality. Truth is that which corresponds to reality. Not that which corresponds to my feelings. Not that which corresponds to my desires. Not that which corresponds to my hopes. But truth is that which corresponds to reality. And we need to recognize that. Uh, and we need to hold on to it. Because people will try and untie us from that mooring. And they will say, well, that's your truth and this is my truth. Well, actually, there is only that which corresponds to reality as truth. God the Father, Son, and Spirit, let's be encouraged Know the truth. Know the truth. So we live in a day and we're wrestling, aren't we? What is, what is real? What isn't real? What, what, what can I put my foundation into? What can't I put my foundation into? And we're living in a society and they're trying to work out what is true and what isn't. And they talk about their truth and they talk about my truth. But what is, what is truth and who defines it? Well, this passage of the Bible tells us that God defines truth. He knows what truth is. 
Jesus Christ came into this world full of truth. Full of truth. In truth, Father, Son, and Spirit created this world. They made it. They set its limits. They defined what reality is. So you have to go to the maker then, don't you? Not only did they create this world, not only did they define it, not only did they set its, its principles and its patterns, not only did they do that, but they've maintained it. So the truth today is the same as when it was first created. Truth isn't changing. It's the same. It, it, uh, the creation set what is real. It's the same today. We've, we haven't changed. The world hasn't changed to change truth. So God created and God maintains. God knows everything that happens. He knows everything that will happen. He knows why things happen and why things don't happen. He defines everything because he knows things as they are. He defines truth. And if we are to stand and be optimistic, we have to stand and be optimistic based on this fact that at the end of the day, God knows. God knows. And so when you're faced with uncertainty and when you're challenged, you default very simply, God knows. God knows. And tomorrow, people will be pushing this idea, and they'll be pushing that idea, and they'll be pushing the other idea, and they'll be pushing ideas that conflict with the Christian faith. They'll be pushing ideas that conflict with their own opinions and the opinions of each other. And as a Christian, it's very simple. God knows. God knows what is true. God knows what is right. The truth is found in God. Not only does God know what is true, which is a great encouragement, but deeply inadequate if the next thing isn't true. Not only does God is true, but he tells us what is true. That's vitally important, isn't it? If, if, if God knew what was true and he kept the secret to himself, we'd be, we'd be done, wouldn't we? We'd be absolutely done because we'd be thrashing about in the dark. But God has spoken. John describes it like this. In the beginning was the word. God is described as a communicator. Jesus Christ, who is the word, is a speaker, a revealer. And so as we live in this world and we say, what is truth? John says, look at Jesus. He is God's revelation. God knows everything as it is, has given us his, his son to show us everything as it is, to speak everything as it is, to do everything as it is. You will never see more clearly the world as it truly is than in the Bible. That's where you see the world as it truly is. In all the confusion of what's going on around you, if you're uncertain, go back to the Bible. The Bible tells you how things exactly are from the word of him who created and sustains the world. And that's why 
The world thinks it's mad, but we hold on to this book, don't we? And we say there's only one library that desert and discs is very simple for a Christian. There's only one book you want to take there, isn't there? There's only one book. There's only one book that describes the world as it is and God as he is and us as we are and salvation as it is. And that's this book. This is the only book. This is the only book you can base your life on. And we live in a society that don't understand that and they think it's mad. So where are they getting their truth from? Feelings? Ideas? Television? Films? Songs? What is that compared to the originator of all things? So we must hold on to the Bible and never let it go. For God speaks. He speaks and not only does he speak, he speaks so we can hear. I'm sure you've heard sermons and you've walked out and you've thought, that was very good, I'm sure, but I didn't understand a word of it. Yeah, have you, have you, have you had that? I went to lectures, I've been to lectures, and I've gone out of the lectures, and I've gone out to meetings, and I've thought, I'm sure that was very good, but I wish someone would tell me what the code is. What, how, what, what on earth did that mean? They used language that I just did not understand. The Bible uses language that we all understand. Some things we struggle with. Some things we, we struggle to understand. But it is understandable. It can be understood by the youngest child. Jesus tells stories. Everybody understands a story. The smallest child understands a story. God speaks in stories. He speaks by people's lives. We can all look at someone and how they live and the consequence of how they live and who they trust. It's, we all understand that, don't we? But then also God speaks through prophecy. Some of that is a little harder. It takes a little bit more work. And God speaks through Paul, a theologian. But even Paul's writings can be understood. God speaks so we can hear. The problem isn't that we can't hear. We, we don't want to hear. That's invariably the problem. And so we read the Bible, and let me encourage you, when you open the Bible, expect to understand it. Pray to God, Lord, help me understand. Help me understand your word. It's a, it's a spiritual thing to open the Bible, because there are, two levels. There's the basic words, but then there's what God wants you to know. Some people understand the basic words, but don't appreciate that behind them is a God who's telling you something. We as Christians understand that, don't we? It's not just words on a page. It's God telling us things that are vital for life. And as we face a very, very un uncertain and at times confusing and information-loaded world, the Bible tells you all you need to know to live in a way that gives God glory, to live a good life. Because God speaks, and God speaks through his word. 
And then, as I just touched on, when you open God's word, you can understand it. And you can understand the words on the page, which is a great blessing. And you can understand that there's meaning behind it. But God also gives you his spirit, the author of his word, so that you actually have the author with you. It's something quite remarkable when you open the Bible. Not only are there words and meanings, but if you're a Christian, the author is living within your heart. And so you can turn to him and say, what do you mean by this? Help me understand it. Help me take it in. Speak, Lord. Your servant is listening. And that's surely for all of us a huge encouragement. God is full of truth. And truth for you and me, for our lives, that we can grasp, that will help us to live in a way that brings glory to him. The maker's manual is on your lap. All you have to do is open and pray and seek him. And he will speak. God never turns aside anyone who says, with purity of heart and honesty, speak, Lord, your servant is listening. And that's a great encouragement for our day. And it means that we can be optimistic and encouraged going forward because we have someone who will help us get through the uncertain days. That's the first thing. The second thing we Jesus described as full of truth and full of grace. Uh, this word grace is used in, in many, on many occasions and in many different ways, but its meaning is quite simple. It's a state of kindness or favor towards someone, often with a focus on a benefit given, a gift or a credit or a blessing. Grace is a benefit, a gift that someone gives someone else. In the Bible, the Bible speaks of two things. That, that sound the same, but are not quite the same. We're told that, that God is full of mercy. We have a merciful God. That's very encouraging. And what that means is that God does not give you what you deserve. Yeah? So you're a sinner and God is holy and there's judgment due. And you go to God and you say, God, have mercy on me. Don't that's due to me yeah. and, and so in a way mercy is is not receiving what you deserve yeah. and it's, it's vital and, and, and every Christian knows it and every Christian cries out for it we all cry out for mercy God don't give me what I deserve and, G and God says I won't give you what you deserve I'll lay it on my son Jesus Christ I'll lay what you deserve on him and he'll pay the penalty that's due to you. Amazing. Amazing. That's mercy. Grace is different. Grace is receiving what we don't deserve. So mercy is not receiving what we deserve. Grace is receiving what we don't deserve. The words, it sounds almost the same, doesn't it? Yeah? 
but grace is receiving what we don't deserve. God is full of grace. In other words, God gives us what we don't deserve. And as we look forward to the future, and we're so aware that we are not what we ought to be in our thinking, in our actions, God will give us what we don't deserve. Is that amazing? There's common grace. I look at the world around me and I think, what on earth is going to happen? I look at Ukraine, I wonder what's going to happen. I look at, at other places of terrible conflict in Africa, I wonder what's going to happen. I look, at, I look at the rise of China, I wonder what's going to happen. There are huge movements, aren't there, in this, in this modern world. Uh, but let's be assured of common grace. God gives everybody to a certain extent, what they don't deserve. Every person that woke up this morning breathing has received God's undeserved mercy. What they deserve is death and judgment. What they received was physical life. Yeah? And some received more because they grew up in safety and in a nice house with food and people around them that loved them. And that's common grace. And so God is gracious to everyone. Uh, God still blesses everyone. The Bible puts it like this. The rain falls on the just and the unjust, the good and the bad. You know, the sun shines on the good and the bad. That's God's grace. We don't deserve it, but we receive it. And that's true of absolutely everything. God, all things were made through him, Verse 3 of chapter 1 of John. And without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. So the sun continues to shine, and the rain continues to fall, and the harvest continues to grow. And within this world, there are men and women waking up every morning and living their lives, and they don't deserve to have their lives and to wake up. And that's God's grace. And all of us had that common grace before we were Christians. And all of our neighbors and all of our friends have that common grace. Not only that, but God does not let us be as evil as we could be. And that's common grace. And God restrains evil across the world. And sometimes we look at the world and we say, God, why do you allow that evil to take place? And part of the answer is, if only you appreciated what I was constraining. If only you appreciated what I was constraining. So there's common grace. And so we can be encouraged and optimistic that tomorrow, God will exercise common grace. And that tomorrow, even our unbelieving neighbors will act in a kind and generous way, mostly. And people will do what they've agreed to do, and people will act in a way that is kind and generous and loving. And that's God. That's God at work. If he was to withdraw his restraining hand, there's a word for what we'll be living in, and it's called hell. The end destination where God ultimately removes 
his restraining hand. And that's encouraging, isn't it? Tomorrow morning, because God is gracious, you'll get up, and even though you're believing, your neighbors are not believers, and even though people around you, your doctor and your dentist are not believers, because of common grace, because of God's restraining hand, they'll do kind to you, and they'll do good to you, and they'll very often do their best for you. Now, some won't. We acknowledge that, you know, but most will. That's common grace. It gives us a reason to get up tomorrow morning, doesn't it? But what they need to know about is the next kind of grace, which is saving grace. Saving grace. Paul puts it like this. Romans 3, 23. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And, are justified, and they are justified by grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Jesus Christ. John here in 1 John verse 12 says it like this. But to all who did receive Jesus, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Why can I get up tomorrow? Because of God's saving grace. Why can I get out of bed? Because God has saved me. Why can I walk the streets? Why can I speak to people about Jesus Christ? Why can I do good? Why can I go to bed and sleep safe in my bed? Because God has saved me. Not because I deserve it. It's his will to do it. Why can I have hope for the most rebellious child? Why can I have hope for the kindest person who seems utterly blind to their true condition? God's saving grace. We don't deserve it, but he saves us. He doesn't just restrain sin, which is common grace. He removes sin, which is saving grace. And he makes us his children. It's family grace. And he's going to take us to be with him forever. Eternal grace. So whatever happens in this world, if you're a Christian, God has saved you. Not because of anything good in you, because of what is good in him. And he'll keep you, not because of anything good in you, but because of what's good in him and because of the work of his son. And he'll take you to heaven, not because of anything good in you, not because of anything that you've achieved in your own power, but because of what he's done through Jesus Christ. And that can never be taken from you. No one can ever take that from you. And no matter what lies ahead, no one can ever take from you saving grace. In fact, John calls it grace upon grace. Grace upon grace. God was good enough to let us see our sin. That's the first grace, the law. And the second grace was God was good enough to save you. 
God was kind and saved you. If he had just shown you your sin, what a desperate state you'd be in. But he didn't just show you your sin. He showed you the Savior. And he didn't just show you the Savior, but he gave you faith to trust him. And if he's done that, then he'll keep you. So no matter what else happens in the world, you are kept forever and ever. So you can get up tomorrow morning and whatever may come your way, they cannot take you from God. They can never take you from God. You are sealed forever in his everlasting arms. Thirdly, present grace. God doesn't just do this all at a distance. You know, it's, it's, not all, it's not all done at a distance from remote control and, and pulling strings and whatever. God comes into our lives. He gave us the right to become the children of God. We become his family. He sent his only son into this world to live amongst us, to be one of us. He sends his Holy Spirit to dwell within us. God did more than save through Jesus Christ. God through Jesus Christ gave us life, new birth, a new heart, new loves, new desires, new appetites, and his Holy Spirit. And he never leaves us or forsakes us. And you may wake up tomorrow morning and you may think that you're all alone, but you're not. God is with you and his spirit is within you. You may wake up tomorrow morning and you may become very ill. You may find yourself in Morriston Hospital. I hope you don't, but you may. You may find yourself unable to have visitors and guests and unable to communicate with them. It happens, but God is with you. God is with you. You may go to work tomorrow. You may be the only Christian in the workplace. And all around you in your workplace, there may be people who are swearing and blaspheming and who have a very different worldview to you. And they may turn against you. And they may be trying to get you out of your workplace. And you may feel absolutely alone, but you're not. God is with you. You may wake up tomorrow morning and be alone in your house. And you may, may only speak to one or two people tomorrow. And it happens, doesn't it? And you may only speak to one or two people. And you may go out of your house to get a paper because then at least you speak to one person. Or it may be just you and your dog. And you may feel utterly alone. But you're not. God is with you. God is with you. His presence is with you. And no matter what lies ahead, God will never leave you and he will never forsake you. It's the grace of his presence. Even when you sin, he won't leave you. Even if you let him down, he won't leave you. I think of famous things, famous people in the Bible. King David, how oh, he... 
Let's not dig too deep into King David's life. Yet he would speak in his Psalms of God never leaving him. God never left him. Uh, Peter, who denied Jesus Christ on the very night he was betrayed, he was restored. He will never leave you. He will never forsake you. Whatever happens in this world and whatever lies ahead, and we don't know what it is, we don't know what personally lies ahead, and we don't know what as a culture lies ahead or as a world lies ahead, God will never leave his people. Those who've put their trust in him, who are called the children of God, who know what it means to follow him and to love him and to know him, God will always be with you and never forsake you. That's the healing balm seen most clearly in God's word and in Jesus Christ. We face very uncertain days, don't we? We face many huge challenges personally and as a culture, and we will continue to face them. They will not stop. But if you're a Christian, you can get up tomorrow morning full of hope and full of expectation because God is still on his throne. And he will lead you in all things. And he will ultimately save you. And he will presently be saving you. And he will never leave you. And he will never forsake you.